Welcome to the Moot Podcast. I am Kenny Tallarico. I'm here as always with Sam Lieberman. Sam, how are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm 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 doing great. Um, Recovering just, from the Rona. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I was going to say um, this is uh, we haven't put out an episode in a while, and uh, it's because of a what uh, Lemony Snicket might call a series of unfortunate events. <laughs> uh, the first being Sam having a concussion, which postponed some of our records, and then the second being me getting COVID about a week ago, which postponed more of our records. So. Uh, we're, we're much later than, than we were hoping, but we do, I think, have a pretty good episode in store for you. So today we're talking about a truly leftist or Marxist interpretation of Tolkien, uh, which in, in, in both my and Sam's experience is pretty few and far between in the, the Tolkien, uh, secondary literature. I would also add that most of them are bad and, uh, Today, the main paper we're going to be covering is notably good. Yes, that's also true. And basically, we were kind of uh, we were kind of doing the um, pre late nineteen eighties um, uh, news network scouring for both sides, and uh, <laughs> yeah. and uh, it's hard to find literature by people who are uh, at least nominally on the left who are actually making arguments that Sam and I can take seriously despite both of us being on the left uh yeah it, I, I was i was sorry for cutting you off there but i was gonna say i think some friends of ours who know our politics and have listened to this podcast are have probably been surprised that this episode hasn't uh come out yet or hasn't been produced yet and i think it was because we just did not find something that was of sufficient quality until recently yeah and i mean to be fair there may be some bias in the, the the quality thing. I think we may be holding uh, holding leftists to a higher standard. I mean, we did review The Hobbit Party by Jonathan <laughs> Witt and J.W. Richards. Uh, we, <laughs> we did a two-episode review of that piece of dog shit. So, yeah, it's so bad. So, But, I, I, you know what? I actually can't justify it. I just think that that was funny. And I agree. That, and that it was worth talking about because of how weird it was. Um, but, like, Joshua Heren's book is sort of a conservative interpretation as well. Um, but it's just good. It, it's good, though. <laughs> so, so like, that's something that, that we're happy to talk about and, and, and reference. Um, but the paper we're talking about today, uh, this is going to be really the, the basis for almost all of this episode. Uh, it's this paper by Sam. Do you know how to say his name? Is it, is it Ishe? I believe it's a Shea Landa, but we could be butchering it. In which okay. case, if he is listening to this, we, we apologize. <laughs> yeah, a Shea Landa uh, is the author, or perhaps a different pronunciation. And the, the paper is called Slaves of the Ring, Tolkien's Political Unconscious. So, Sam, before we start uh, talking about all of the things that are in this paper and about our own uh, thoughts and opinions on this, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about who this author is? So, Ashay Landa is an associate professor of history at the Open University of Israel. He is a left-wing political theorist and political philosopher. He, he publishes quite a bit of, of media criticism on both film and literature. Um, he's been published in a number of popular publications, including uh, Jacobin. He, from what I can tell, his most uh, notable book, his most successful book, is called The Apprentice's Sorcerer, Liberal Tradition and Fascism which uh, neither me nor Kenny have read. But it does sound interesting. But it sounds interesting, and it's about Something we the, would both like. Yeah, the, the, quote, critical affinities between liberal tradition and fascism. Um, I'm going to go off on a 
laymen assume that this is not making the liberal, cut a liberal uh, fascist bleeds claim, but rather talk about some deeper political, theoretical similarities, ways that it might be less insane than people think that there are individuals and groups who sort of transition from one to the other relatively fast. He's also written about uh, the philosophy of the marketplace and a number of books on uh, fascism and popular revolts. So seems to be... Oh, and then I should also say for his background, he got his um, uh, bachelor's, master's, and PhD from uh, Ben-Gurion University of the Negev. Yep. Awesome. So... um so yeah, this this is a. I think that one thing we found when we were again in the past looking for sort of uh, left leaning interpretations of Tolkien is that you are almost always gonna get sort of when you do find one at all, it's almost always gonna be like in relation to Tolkien's influence with the counterculture, which, as we talked about with uh, with Professor Isserman. Uh, on on episode four, I think um, the the problem with that is that the counterculture is is no is is markedly different from like a not orthodox Marx Marxist but a, a more traditionally sort of leftist stance. Uh, the counterculture is a lot is a lot more heterogeneous and uh, it's really more. Um, anarchic at its roots than it is doctrinaire, Marxist, or socialist, or anything like that. Sam, would you agree with that? Yeah, I'd agree with all of that. So this was exciting to find uh, something written by someone who um, I don't actually know this for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if he called himself if he calls himself a Marxist. I would be shocked given that he writes in the New Left Review and Jacobin and what all of his articles are titled <laughs> and what this article is like if he would not identify as a Marxist. Yeah. So um, so that was exciting to finally find something by uh, by someone in, in, in that tradition rather than the, the counterculture sort of milquetoast liberal traditions. Um, and uh, the the good news – is that uh, he is a fantastic writer, he and is. that this paper is very readable and is also, at least for me, it was my favorite thing that we've actually read for this podcast because I mean I'm already predisposed to agree with most of it, um, but so that that probably has some effect. But I also think that it was the most well written thing that we've read, other than maybe Joshua Han, and um, it's also I just think the. Uh, the best argued as well. Yeah, I would also say one thing that I really like about this is that he doesn't stretch what Tolkien says to fit his worldview. There's a number yeah. of times when he sort of matter-of-factly states that Tolkien, if you're talking about Tolkien the progressive and Tolkien the reactionary, is more Tolkien the reactionary. He says, on this is on page 121, uh, there could be little doubt that Tolkien's basic ideological intent, as well as effect, have been to bolster the present hegemony, not undermine it. So he's not um, really saying that Tolkien's beliefs were contrary to what we think they are, or that the text of Lord of the Rings is different than what they think they are. But rather, and this is actually quite the Tolkien-esque thing to do, he's applying the text in a different way. Uh, it's sort of the allegory versus application um, to discussion that Tolkien made, but he's sort of applying it in a different way, and in a way that I think makes sense. Yeah, that's right. That that's another thing is that I that was actually 
glad you brought that up because uh, I don't know that I would have formulated it this way uh, without that prompting. But I think another thing that I really liked about this paper is that it feels very honest from yes. the author in a way that, for example, The Hobbit Party does not. The entire time, The Hobbit Party feels disingenuous and like the author's sort of know what they're doing and it's a uh, it's it's very cheap and artificial and uh and i don't get that sense from from this paper at all i get the sense that this is a, a person who's really taking what he's writing about seriously and engaging very seriously with uh with the subject matter yeah if if i might may quote uh landa again the present discussion is therefore an effort to tease out the implications of tolkien's subject matter the broadly neglected radical undercurrent of his narrative, even if this means reading Tolkien, in a sense, against himself. This is not done in exculpation, but in the conviction that there is something worth salvaging in Tolkien, something too valuable to be left to complacent conservatives who see in him nothing but a writer who furnishes a mythology for England. Yeah, yeah. Um, right, I, I love that. So, to get a little bit of background on the framework that he's applying, I guess, we have to talk about uh, this political theorist and literary critic, a guy named Frederick Jameson. Uh, so Frederick Jameson is, uh, he's still alive, he's almost 90. And um, he is, like I said, he's a hes a political theorist, he's a Marxist. Uh, the book that um, Landa is referencing uh, throughout this whole article, and actually in the title of the article, is Jameson's 1981 book, The Political Unconscious. And if you want to really sort of sum that up in, in just a few words, at least that are relevant toward what we're talking about, it's uh, this idea that the forces of history uh, are inherently political um, and that you can't separate politics and the forces of history from literature or art everything sort of commingles with with one another to form this this stew of, of things so it's and actually if i if this isn't too presumptuous i, I think that it's inherently a a, a left leaning or left wing view of just the way that history works and the way that and the way that society functions uh and the the thing that for whatever reason i think it's because my brain is permanently broken by contemporary american politics but the thing that i immediately thought of was uh the kneeling during football games because yeah. it's it's the the complaint from conservatives was never like I don't think that you have the right to kneel instead of stand. Some of them said that. But the thing that they always said was, this is a football game. This is no place for politics. Uh, despite the fact that, <laughs> despite the fact that, you know, they have uh, fighter fighter jets fly over <laughs> during the national anthem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's not political, of course, right? That's not yeah, political. Yeah, the, 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 the national anthem to the country with it, the paid for by the state military performance is apolitical. Right. That's apolitical. Right. So, so there's a, in, at least in that case, there's a, an understanding of certain things are political and other things are not political. And the things that are uh, political don't belong in, in the football game. Right. Whereas I think someone like me or Sam, or uh, I also think anyone who is really thinking about this, 
seriously. Or, or I should say some conservatives. Or some conservatives, right, would sort of say, like, no, everything that we do is is political. Like, our, our, and you can't separate things and say, oh, well, this is football, which is not political. So there's this is no place for, uh, this is no place for a political uh, statement of any kind. Uh, despite the fact that it's disingenuous on its face because of, like I said, about the military and the national anthem, which, of course, are very political. But, um, yeah, so that that's what I thought of, though, is that there actually are still some echoes of, of this idea of certain things are political and certain things aren't, and you can separate them, that being a sort of conservative or right-wing framing of it. And and really where that comes into play most in uh, for Tolkien is talking about the the idea of like oh well this is a it's a fantasy story so it, it's fantasy so it's completely separate from reality and uh, the characters in it are they're not real so we shouldn't actually take into account what they do and say and and their decisions they're not rational actors whereas I think the idea here is to say well maybe not so fast yeah I mean Tolkien is as we've said on many episodes of this podcast quick to point out that. His story is not set in an imaginary world. It's set in an imaginary fantasy of our own world. Um, Landa quotes Tolkien on this. On I think a quote we've also independently cited on this podcast before. I am historically minded. Middle-earth is not an imaginary world. The name is the modern form of Midden-Erd, or Middle-Erd, an ancient name for the Oikumene, the abiding place of men, the objectively real world in use specifically opposed to imaginary worlds as fairyland or unseen worlds as heaven or hell. The theater of my tale is this earth, the one in which we now live, but the historical period is imaginary. Um, And Landa quotes that to say that Tolkien dismisses any notion of his world as one residing outside or beyond history. And I think, although Landon doesn't put this exactly here, this also fits with Tolkien saying that he's not, he doesn't do um, um, allegory, but he does do application. Um, It's not a fantasy world. It's a fantastical imaginary history. And it's not an allegory for currently existing things, but rather because it's an imaginary history, it can apply to them. Yes, absolutely. Um, That's where one of the big things that, that, Landa focuses on comes from, and this is earlier on in the paper, and that is, uh, just like you're saying, Tolkien himself says he he prefers history, quote, true or feigned, over allegory, uh, and uh, you get you get the sense that what he's writing about is not intended to just be a, a fun kid story, that there there is more underneath, whether it's, and at least according to Tolkien, it was not allegorical, but it is a true or feigned history, and when you're looking at history, then you should be able to apply to that history the frameworks of uh, of historical analysis, right? I would add that, I mean, a great example of this to me is that if Tolkien was simply just writing some fun kid story or complete fantasy, he would not have felt the need to make his world's cosmology uh, congruous with Christian belief. Right, like the the explicit reason why it's monotheistic and that the Valar are angels essentially in service of Iluvatar rather than other gods is because it has to fit with reality, which in his mind is a sort of monotheistic Christian reality. I mean, he certainly had no uh, uh, no lack of imagination, right? He could have he could have come up with some crazy 
mythology and 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 theology. Uh, but but his, while it is of course extremely interesting and what we talk about it a lot, is uh, essentially a Christian one. Um, and it's not just a Christian one; it's also supposed to be one that matches like reality at the most obvious level. So in his letters and also stuff in the history of Middle Earth, there's a lot of stuff about him changing it from being a flat plane to a rounded world. And the way that he fits this together is that in in the course of events of the Legendarium, it changes because by the end it has to match reality as it exists today. Right. Um, Which implies that the Earth did used to be flat. True. <laughs> but he also has a lot of stuff about like his, uh, especially towards the end of his life, about his his struggles to make his uh, literal cosmology, like the stars and how Nienna casted them and all that stuff fit with uh, actual astronomy, which he was invested in. Yeah, yeah. It gets to a point where I would imagine you have to just kind of be an expert on everything to make your imagined world match the real world sufficiently. Yeah. Uh, so so I would imagine what a daunting task that becomes. Um so the another thing that we talk about a lot early on in this this paper uh, related to the the preference for uh, true or feigned history is the idea that uh, that Tolkien's writing is this is an argument land is making but but it's fairly well supported in uh, Tolkien's own writing or in his letters uh, that that Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit are are, not intended to be escapist uh, in their in their nature. So, uh, and th- this is also an argument that the 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 author Patrick Curry makes too uh, in his book Defending Middle Earth: Tolkien, Myth, and Modernity, which uh, we have talked about. We've never done like an episode on it or anything, but we've we've referenced before. But he, uh, Curry makes this similar argument that Tolkien's writing is not. Uh, is not escapism. It's not meant to be a thing where, like, oh, your life is, uh, you know, you're you're not happy in your life for a whole list of reasons. So here's the the prescription: is reading this thing that is so fantastical, and you can pretend you're in this make believe world, and everything is all right for a little bit. Of course, it may have that effect for lots of people, uh, but that that is not necessarily the intention. J- uh, Jameson, the uh, the political theorist that uh, Lando is basing a lot of his writing on, he actually calls that sort of escapism, quote, a complacent reactionary illusion. And so here's a, here's a Landa quote that I, think, uh, that I think sums this up very well. It's on page 115. Quote, Far from being escapist literature, Tolkien's work in general and Lord of the Rings in particular are very much about the impossibility of escape, the inevitability of squarely confronting reality. There is no question in Tolkien's universe of some, quote, already existing realm of freedom, unquote, while the hobbits may heartily wish to take permanent refuge in their blind zone of pleasant, uneventful routine, they will nonetheless be violently dragged out to become reluctant participants in a fateful historical quest. This is a an argument that I hadn't thought of, but that I think, like, I, I was immediately convinced. I thought that that was extremely compelling about yeah. how about how Tolkien's work, the evidence for it not being escapist literature is in the nature of the story itself, which indicates that 
I mean, the hobbits want nothing more than to escape the conflict and fighting uh, that's happening in the world because it's not affecting the Shire really at all, at least in the in the early parts of the book, right? They don't want anything to do with it. Uh, if they can, they would rather just hide, you know, Frodo and Frodo says like, you know, why do I have to, or early on, um, it's like, why do I have to take the ring, right? So I think that that in itself, and then, and then of course, Frodo and, and Sam and the Hobbits being basically pushed into it to a large extent against their will and then eventually accepting the task and everything is itself a story about how escape when the forces of history are strong enough, uh, that escape is not possible. So of course it can't, it can't be escapist literature because the narrative of the story is itself anti-escapist. Yeah. And not even in really a subtextual way. I mean, as, as you referenced, there's exact pieces of dialogue about this. Right. Exactly. It's just never something that I think that you're to make this connection that Landa, I think so intelligently makes here. I think that you have to, you have to make a, a jump between, um, between escapism as it might apply within the world of of Lord of the Rings and escapism yeah. how it applies of course in in the real world uh it's not a i don't think it's a that's a jump that is necessarily uh, uh that way it was never evident to me i never made that connection uh but mm-hmm. i think that i think that it's really compelling yeah i i i concur and 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 so the other thing is that of course in as this might apply to people who are more sort of um, uh, people who are involved in all sorts of activism and things like that. It's also the idea of like Frodo and the hobbits, they can't just look the other way, um, which is of course something that everybody does with all sorts of problems. That's you, you can't be fixing every problem all of the time as much as some people might want to. Uh, But, but in this case, the hobbits, they Frodo has no choice really. He can't just look the other way. Uh, they're in so in which case it's not only like they they choose not to escape. It's they are literally incapable of escaping, and they have to take this quest to save the world, or in a in a more uh, in a more I guess real world sense to to bring about change broadly. Although I guess if you want to talk about like I don't know climate change or something, then I think you can say like it is there is sort of a an analogy there to save the world, right? It's, I think it's, there's more than just climate change. I mean, not to get into the whole X, you know X risk conversation, but I think that there are a number of of pretty fitting analogies for today. Yeah, right. I mean, we've talked before about the uh, the the parallels between the nuclear bomb and uh, the ring, and I yes. think that certainly certainly uh, nuclear warfare is something that would not with a lot of difficulty uh, bring about the end of human life. Yes. Uh, so I certainly think that you can imagine a quest of nuclear dearmament or something fitting that same fitting that same thing, right? Yeah, totally. Oh wait, and that means Sauron is J. Robert Oppenheimer. No, oh, no, 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 no. Um, J. Robert Oppenheimer is. Uh, oh, you're right. It's um the guy from the. He's also in Shadow of Mordor and Shadow of War, right? He's I the, forget. I haven't played those games in years. He, but he's the elf who actually made the rings. Yeah, he's the one who actually like did the like like Sauron. And this is oh, Celebrimbor. Kel, excuse me, Celebrimbor. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oppenheimer is Celebrimbor, and yeah. that actually is indisputable. Yes. Like like it, I think it's so fitting that Sauron did not actually do the labor of of, of making the rings. Yeah. Okay. But so it was instead that, instead a a, a, a 
misled and sort of naive dude who did not uh, consciously do evil. Yeah, and then was, like, deeply haunted. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, no, he's one of Feanor's grandsons. That's insane. It's always it's always crazy, like, because the elves just live forever, that it's like their family trees are just so fucked up. <laughs> that, yes. like, that it's like, oh, yeah, this, this dude who lives thousands of years after Feanor is his grandson. <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, you know how uh, President John Tyler still has a living grandson? <laughs> I did know this. Yeah, so I guess that actually, so John Tyler is Feanor. Um, okay, <laughs> the, the, we were talking about the idea of being unable to just look the other way. Um, again, again, I think that Jameson's right in calling escapism uh, it's sort of reactionary uh, and and illusory because it's like uh, if if you imagine that it's possible to escape you are forfeiting some of your own responsibility. Yes, I would also say, and this this could be jumping the gun a little bit, but with something else that um, Landa locates in uh, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings is the transition from uh, moral voluntarism as a means of solving issues, as is done at the end of The Hobbit, to the need for collective uh, social revolution. Which is not something that Tolkien was a fan of, nor is it something that Landa thinks Tolkien was a fan of. But the this is the sort of dialectical tension that he posits serves the basis of Tolkien's work. Right. And that's, uh, so exactly. First of all, that's also part of what I mean about how I appreciate the, the honesty of the paper, because he could go through Tolkien's letters and take some quotes out of context that make it sound like uh, Tolkien, everything Tolkien thought was consonant with what Landa's arguing. But he doesn't do that. Uh, and it, I'm, I'm, you know, frankly, very happy he doesn't because it that would have made this paper lose a lot of its legitimacy. I think. Um, I agree. And I think that the him being honest and and actually using, um, using the fact that Tolkien himself would not have seen his own writing as supporting like a social revolution, for example. Uh, of itself being evidence of Jameson's theory of the political unconscious, of the idea of you can sort of slice history in all sorts of ways, but like at the at the bottom, there is always this interpretation that you're going to have to wrangle with because that's just part of like that's just the the this mode of historical analysis. You're always going to have to grapple with it because we're just dealing with people, and uh, and people's motives are generally predictable and and in in and determined by the material circumstances of their time that's right yeah that's the important thing is that is that a lot of people's uh a lot of a lot of people's motives and how people behave are very much dictated by material circumstances and uh most people put in a given situation will will probably behave the same way or or similarly it's certainly yeah. not everybody i do think sam you might agree with me um, one of the, the, one of the biggest f- things that uh, I often take umbrage with sort of doctrinaire, uh, traditional Marxist, um, thinking is the idea that, that, uh, it, a lot of it kind of relies on the idea of everybody being a rational actor when actually nobody is a, is a fully rational actor. Yes. Yeah. Uh, this is a, I think... This part of it, I actually think, is just some of the um, 
the 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 far weaker understanding of human psychology that Marx would have had, not by virtue of being Marx, but by virtue of living in the 19th century. Yes, I agree. I think this is the problem with a lot of 19th century political economy. Like it's also there in like George and Ricardo and, and sort of yeah, all of it. exactly. It's not it's it's not unique to Marx, but but nonetheless, it's something that anyone who calls themselves Marxist, I think, has to deal with a little bit. And I mean, you, for example, you see it you see it all over the place of like, well, why if, you know, there's these working people that are being oppressed, why are they like, uh, and, and, you know, maybe they're, you can, you can get to a, what, what, you know, why are they not supportive of like a workers revolution? Right. And it's just the, the fact of the matter is that there are, there are non-material things that affect people's uh how people act both non-material things and also non-material things that are you could any reasonable observer might say are not rational um and this is where i think you and i are i think at some level both uh both fans of um using some uh freudian analysis to yes to fill in the blanks of where where marx can't explain although neither uh, of us are really freudians no no, I think both of us are more Marxians than Freudians, for sure. Yes. Yeah, no, I think we should probably get into the central sort of thesis of Landa's piece, which you actually took a great quote that sort of says exactly what it is. Um, uh, and his thesis is this, the real contradiction underlying Tolkien's fiction is the crisis of, prop- of capitalist property relations at the beginning of the 20th century, culminating in the First World War and the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, Landa sort of sees The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings in overlapping but different ways as discussing the problem of capitalist property relations. Uh, I think a key thing to think about here is that Tolkien himself was both um, conflicted on the matter. He opposed capitalist property relations. I think he also, like Bilbo Baggins, was in a lot of ways the result of them. And though he was opposed to capitalist property relations, he was even more opposed to social revolution or socialism, um, which is where you get the dialectical tension that Land is talking about. And I think a good place to start with this analysis is where Landa sort of starts it, and that's talking about Bilbo Baggins in The Hobbit. So I'll let Kenny take that away. Yeah, so so in in The Hobbit, Landa makes the argument that Bilbo is sort of the the prototypical uh, good thief. The idea of Bilbo stealing from people who have themselves benefited by stealing. It's sort of a uh, as the Bolsheviks might say, uh, looting the looters. Yes, um, yes, exactly. And. Uh, so, for example, Bilbo steals from uh, the trolls, Gollum, Smog, and the dwarves, uh, and Landa makes the argument that the trolls, Gollum, and Smog are all themselves thieves. Bilbo Baggins is sort of this the the the, the took side being the repudiation of. Uh, property and the Baggins side being the vindication of property is not dialectically resolved. None of this is resolved. There's no real synthesis here. And that's sort of the whole point of what Landa's writing about. I think where things get interesting, both in this piece and to Landa, is when we go from uh, The Hobbit, or as he uh, calls it, T-H-O-B, which I have not seen it called Thob before. It's barely shorter than The Hobbit. Yeah, he calls it Thob <laughs> and Lauder. Which Lauder is common. You know, everyone calls it Lauder. 
the Landa discusses how the dwarves and elves will contingently fight each other like they do during the Hobbit and will draw blood uh, in a way that he compares to the English and the Germans who will, quote, temporarily war, even to the point where countless millions perish without forfeiting their civilized status. This is opposed to the elves and dwarves fighting, say, the orcs, which Landa compares to the English and Germans or Europeans broadly uh, fighting or colonizing those people from the global south um, or just the the victims of imperialism more broadly. So there's a pretty uh, broader geopolitical or imperialist comparison you can make there. And this isn't necessarily crucial to the analysis, but there is something there about the expansion of markets and the expansion of certain modes of production, and it becomes even more relevant when we go from the analogy about the brutish mob, the brutish mob, and industrialism into the um, discussion of Lord of the Rings and the Ring. In Lord of the Rings, I think you can focus more squarely on the Ring itself, um, and like I sort of mentioned earlier, I think it's pretty easy to see in the ring uh like nuclear weapons or something like that it's easy to see something that has just uh has has both uh, it's it's almost intoxicating that people want to like have that power and because the power is itself so massive and and potentially destructive uh landa i think takes it even a step further and actually compares the ring to the entire uh, capitalist system. And so this is a quote from the piece that I thought was, uh, again, this this quote alone I think is one of the, the best uh, statements I think that, that we've read in any of this sort of secondary Tolkien literature that we've talked about. Uh, he writes, quote, in the ring are congested all the immeasurable contradictions of the capitalist system, the enormous productivity with the annihilating destructiveness, the unlimited power of the few with the utter impotence of the many, the extravagant luxury and the epidemic poverty, the sanguine promise with its horrible betrayal. All are there in the greatest miniature. Uh, so I thought that that quote was uh, really helpful for me in formulating exactly where he's going with this. And I, I think it's, you get sort of a, a dialectic there in, in the, the allure of the ring and its potential destructive power. Uh, you get just like how he's making the comparison in a, uh, in a, in a capitalist system. Uh, he calls it the sanguine promise and the horrible betrayal that being, you know, the promise that there will there will be enough plenty for for everybody to, uh, you know, the 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 rising tide raises all ships, uh, but it, yeah, it, in in reality, um, it, it's all of the, all, so much of that wealth and power is going to filter its way up to the top and leave uh, leave the vast majority of people impotent and uh, and helpless, and essentially. Uh, well, I guess not if you take a, a truly Marxist interpretation, but in the real world, often completely without recourse to yes. uh, to making their way out of that system, even if they wanted to. He also argues that Lord of the Rings has a, quote, structural openness uh, because it is non-allegorical. 
which, as we have talked about very much, it is supposed to be non-allegorical. He compares that to, say, like Orwell, who everything Orwell wrote, especially like Animal Farm in 1984, are very clearly allegorical. Landa uses the phrase uh, that uh, Tolkien's work lends itself more to a greater fluidity of interpretation. I think that you have, I think even with 1984, even with uh, the fact that it's actually about cancel culture, uh, you still have like, you can't make an argument that 1984 is about anything other than like a sort of authoritarian uh, repression. Whether you are Josh Hawley and are uh, disingenuous and claiming that it's the authoritarian repression of the woke mob, or you are correct and <laughs> and you, you you are arguing that it's the authoritarian repression of sort of just like a an actual right wing or I guess authoritarian left wing government. Um, then uh, you can't really make an argument it's about anything other than authoritarian repression. Whereas with Lord of the Rings, as we've seen in this podcast and with Tolkien's work in general, you can kind of make compelling arguments that it's actually about all sorts of things. Yeah, so something that Lana does here as far as applying arguments in different ways is rather than supersede or contradict Tolkien's clearly Christian ana- or not analogies, applications, or truths, as Tolkien might say, he applies them further. So he writes on page 126, Once again, we can certainly read this overwhelming psychological dominance of the ring as a Christian fable about the temptations the devil places in the path of the believer. But we can complement it with a materialist explanation. In face of such outer and inner enslavement, the bourgeoisie may realize the need for a radical change, may even be willing to undertake it, but to actually carry it through will remain firmly beyond his reach. The walls of the prison of private property may be brought down only with the intervention of a social revolution. But since revolution and the triumph of the orcish proletariat is precisely what the narrative cannot admit, there must be found another means for enforcing the destruction of the ring, a surrogate for the revolution as it were. And this role, of course, will be Gollum's. Yeah, I I also made uh, big notes of, of that section. I thought it was... I, thought, I think it was my favorite part of the paper. There's another quote uh, that's on page 125. Um, the ring has a power greater than that of goodwill and free determination. This is a beautiful illustration of how the economic forces of capitalism objectively harden into an inexorable law, a prison whose walls tower above any individual, however pure or noble. Uh, and I think in this case, if you are drawing the connection here, I think you could say Bilbo and Frodo are the sort of well-meaning liberal uh, bourgeois individuals. Just like how you were saying the bourgeois may may realize the need for a radical change and may even be willing to undertake it, but it's sort of not within their grasp. That's exactly what you get at the end of Lord of the Rings, where Frodo makes it all the way there, but he cannot finish the job. He can't throw the ring in. It's the same as, I mean... Uh, the again, the sort of Marxist way of looking at it would be that it's like y- you can, y- you know, you c- the the bourgeoisie, if they're a well-meaning and liberal uh, bourgeois person, might take might get you almost all of the way there, and they might say like, oh, I'm in favor of these reforms and of of this and this and this, but 
at the end of the day, they are not going to give up their uh, they're not going to give up their wealth, and they're not actually going to uh, uh, they're they're not going to assent to an overthrow of the system I- itself, and that I think is a really compelling argument about the. Uh, I think it's a I think it's an extremely compelling comparison between uh, Frodo and Bilbo and um, and the, the the bourgeoisie in in Marxist theory. Yeah, and then of course just like uh, the part that you read, because the the and we again we, this is something else we talked about with Professor Isserman, but the uh, I think that if this was going to be a, a if if Lord of the Rings was truly like uh, was truly a, a Marxist text at heart, I think that you would have to have like an orc social revolution or something cuz yeah the orcs are clearly the the proletariat uh and of course that's that it, that would be inconceivable uh in the context of how the actual story works uh so you need some some event which is kind of a divine intervention in a way of Smeagol or Gollum uh attacking Frodo and and destroying the ring almost by accident and that that takes the place of the social revolution um, in in sort of forcing the bourgeoisie against their will to overthrow uh, the status quo. Yeah, totally. Um, and as far as the sort of overthrow is concerned, I think something else that Landa doesn't directly say, but the idea... Well, actually, he sort of does talking about World War One is that in the same ways that the sort of contradictions of capitalism can produce revolution, it can also just produce a broader war between existing imperialist or just geopolitical forces, which is what the War for the Ring is. Although you do have the surrogate for the revolution in the form of Gollum, there still is the um, uh, international war at place. Yeah, that that's right. And... Um... And, and and exactly the 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 war that during the war of the ring what's it's it's not super unlike the great wars of the of the 20th century in that you have this this force in in Sauron and and Mordor and then is uh, later allied with Saruman who are i think like pretty obviously imperialistic uh they want to conquer other lands and stuff um and and then you have a a coalition on the other side that are also these sort of great bourgeois powers, right? There's no there's no like uh, both sides are sort of using, uh, I guess you could say average people in 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 Mordor's and and Isengard's case it's orcs, uh, and in uh, in the case of Gondor and Rohan it's just sort of regular people. Um, who at least I mean this this gives you a glimpse into Tolkien's ideology as well in that I Sam I might be misremembering but I don't think there's much of any portrayal of like the regular people of Gondor of Gondor and Rohan being anything but like enthusiastic about going to fight am I misremembering I think you're remembering that correctly I believe Rohan certainly I I I, I think Gondor, but we don't see a ton of the regular people of Gondor. That's true. Yeah, we don't really. Um, but but in, in Rohan, yeah, I think you get the... It's portrayed as that they're sort of these... Uh, uh, honestly, in a way, almost noble savages. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's not inaccurate. 
Well, they're explicitly supposed to be uh, Anglo-Saxons and mixed with Mongols. That's right. That's right. So, anyway, all that's to say, I think that it's a it's a really smart connection between um, between uh, the idea of and this uh, of, of of Bilbo and Frodo being sort of the the liberal bourgeoisie, and that's also a thing that Joshua Haren directly talks about. He, he spends uh, that whole chapter on whether. Uh, on whether Bilbo is uh, a, bur- a burglar or a, a bourgeois, and I think it's, you know, of course it's both, which I think you're getting here as well, right, with Bilbo's status as sort of like a, again, a Robin Hood-type figure, uh, looting, or, or a, perhaps a, a Vladimir Lenin <laughs> figure in uh, looting the looters. Um, and I think you get the same thing in him eventually being... Bilbo also has to be forced to give up the ring. Uh, it's 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 sort of it's less violent than Frodo being forced to give up the ring, but yes, it still is. If he's kind of doing everything he can to trick Gandalf into letting him take it with him, and then he almost attacks Frodo in Rivendell. Um, <clears throat> so I think it's you have the same thing of the the ring being so tempting even though they recognize even that it's if it would be the right thing to do to get rid of the ring it's just so tempting um which i think that you can say the same thing about lots of uh liberal wealthy people yeah totally the, the sort of like effective altruist notion that we can that the rich can give their money away into solving the problems of society is just sort of cap because it's too hard to do yeah why don't you elaborate yeah i would say that there's this sort of notion, I think, I think the nice thing about a lot of effective altruists is that uh, however misguided and strange and just odd as most of them are, that they have a real interest in broad society-wide issues and in saving the most lives possible. And I think that that perspective is helpful on a number of issues. However, the way that most of them arrive at doing that is just that people, especially rich people, should sign a pledge and give as much of their money as they can or are comfortable doing to um, save the most lives or work on the biggest problems, whether it's like climate change or like AI X risk, which is a little more speculative, or, you know, giving money to uh, starving poor people in the global south, which is certainly admirable. I think the critique that Landa is sort of making through Tolkien, or not through, or applying Tolkien to make, is that that sort of... um, voluntary forfeiture of one's wealth or status or whatever is not sufficient to solve our broader problems. Um, and that you need, people don't like the word coercion, but you need some element of, of coercion. And I mean, and then this, this is, I think a this, I, I do think is a fundamental truth, uh, contained in Marx, uh, cause that's where this is, coming from really at its at its core at least the the theory of it uh the idea that that no matter how sort of well-meaning it's you're gonna like the number of people who are uh extremely wealthy who would be actually willing to who would actually be willing to like give up what would be necessary to give up to achieve some meaningful societal redistribution of wealth and everything is it's just uh, like there there's no way that that happens fully voluntarily just because of human nature that it's like at a certain point 
at a certain point, they're just not going to be willing to give more. Yeah, and it, there's also the problem of when it's just rich people giving up their money, they get to decide how it gets spent more often than not. And there's no democratic uh, impulse to the act of charity. And that can be good. I don't doubt that the anti-malaria nets have saved countless lives, right? But that can also be bad when you look at, like, you know, um, rich people's charitable contributions being, like, the new hockey rink at whatever, you know, elite college. Like, the one that I went to and Kenny went to. It's like, <laughs> that's not doing anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Like, I mean, I think Sam and I agree that probably just the objectively, the the the, the best way to that you can like spend every dollar to to help to help a person the most is to just give it to them. Yes. <laughs> like like the the best way to in, in, I mean if you're talking about for example like public health crises that's I think a different thing where it's like obviously at a certain point if like yeah stopping malaria or aids or or some other you know huge epidemic that kills bajillions of people every year that that is i think a separate thing but certainly if you're talking about at least like in the US uh the best way to help a a a, a person who is in poverty is not means tested programs and it's not uh it, i mean it it doesn't have to not involve government interference but it should just be just give people money because the thing yes. that the thing that poor people are missing is not you know the initiative to work or the ability to make decisions about where their money is best spent it's actually that they just don't have money <laughs> yeah i would agree i would also say and, and part, possibly even larger issue is like the broader like uh cost of goods across society which is a harder and more complicated issue but yeah i agree yeah, absolutely said. yeah absolutely i mean of course it's not as it's not as easy as as i'm making it sound uh i think that i i do think that like the 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 first principle of like government social welfare should in general be with as uh as sort of as simply as possible giving money to people who need money yes uh, because they know best on what they need to spend that money on. Um, yeah, completely. So anyway, we're, we, we've we've run far afield of of this, but you know we've been going for a little while here. I think we we covered we covered a lot of it, and I think that uh, it it took us into some some fruitful conversation. Is there anything else that you wanted to touch on from from this paper or on this topic? No, I think that was about everything. Okay, well then, uh, Sam, as always, this was a fantastic conversation. Uh, Glad to be able to uh, to discuss this paper with you. Any final words? Anything to add? Um, I would recommend that people read this paper because it was really good. Yes, uh, agreed. Definitely, definitely check out this paper. As always, we'll include a link in uh, in the show notes. Sam, it was a pleasure, and I will talk to you next time. Bye bye. Yeah, have a good one. by Sam Lieberman and Kenny Tellerico. Our cover art is by Claire Harple. Our theme music is by Kenny Tellerico. Any materials or writings discussed in this episode are linked below in the show notes.